This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we cover the new entry-level storage grid platform, the SG100. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipoc. Zipoc. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the basement of my house and with me today I have a whole bunch of people here from the object storage team and today we're going to talk about exactly that, object storage. Uh, and to do that we've intro- uh, we've brought Stephen Prichnewski is here today. So Stephen, did I say that right? You did. Sounds really good. Yes. <laughs> so Stephen, uh, what do you do here at NetApp? So I am the manager for the storage grid tech market engineers. That it? You just manage? I just manage them. <laughs> so yeah, it's happened about six months ago, and I'm very slowly getting away from doing anything useful other than just, you know, making sure other people do good stuff. With COVID and the remote work, I mean, how do they handle the, the lobotomy they have to give you? <laughs> they sent me a nice pick in the mail. Um, oh, you I s- haven't brave enough to use it yet. It's good. I, I recommend just putting it on the floor and just falling on it. <laughs> So, uh, so Steve, uh, how do we reach you if you want to reach you? Uh, you can get me at email at sprch at netapp.com. And I'm also at Twitter at webscale Steve. Webscale Steve. All right. With a V. Oh, Steve with a V? Steve with a V. Is it spelled any other way? <laughs> Some people do a PH. Uh, yeah, but like, do you spell Steve with a PH? That's a good point. That would be a Stefan, right? <laughs> be, hmm. I don't know. All right. Uh, so also here with us today, Sam Fink. Hi, Sam. What do you do here at NetApp and how do we reach you? Sam, did I say Fink right? Yeah. Yeah. Right, that's good. correct. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, I'm an engineer on the storage grid uh, product development team um, and technical lead on our networking and load balancing functionality. And uh, you can reach me at uh, sam.fink, that's F-I-N-K, at netapp.com. All right. And last but not least, Morgan Mears. Hi, Morgan. How do we reach you and what do you do? Uh, hey, Justin. Um, I am a, a principal engineer and technical lead on Storage Grid's uh, platform team uh, based in RTP. Um, you can reach me at double uh, M E A R S uh, at uh, netapp.com. And I, I tried for uh, WebScale Steve on Twitter, but it was already taken. So oh, um, yeah. just have to stick, stick with email, I guess. That's cool. You could be WebScale web Morgan, but that doesn't have the same ring to it. No, not at all. So how, how's the weather where you're at, Morgan? <laughs> oh, just looking out the window. Um, uh, it looks uh, sunny. Yeah, uh, same here. Yeah, a little bit cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Justin, uh, Justin lives two houses down from, I do. from me. <laughs> but we're not allowed to have this together, so... We're keeping separate. All right. Um, so like I said, we're going to talk about storage grid and object storage today and, and mainly to talk about the new stuff that's coming with the new releases as well as the new platforms. But we always like to level set here in case you're not familiar with things like object storage or even storage grid. Uh, so let's start it off with object storage. Steve, um, I know you're a manager now, but I think you can handle this one. What's object storage? To me, it is cloud storage, right? It is now the ability to you know, write to a URL, you know, think about a web address and then use these incredibly simple verbs, right? Put, get, delete. 
um, we have this one, you know, kind of eye chart of what's the difference between SAN or, you know, between block and file and the complexity of SAN, what an application needs to do to be able to actually, you know, write blocks on a disk. And then you go to the next level of abstraction, which is, you know, file, where again, I'm, I'm doing a little less. I can now write to network attached storage. Uh, my application is, is simpler. And now I go to an application that is written for cloud storage or for object storage. And again, it's just incredibly simple, right? I mean, uh, someone who's an absolute novice can write a Python program to do a simple put into object storage. I've got a URL, which represents my endpoint, and then I'm gonna put it, right? So if you look at these, they're absolutely human readable. And you know, new engineers that are graduating out of college, right? They're used to this level of simplicity, right? They're used to consuming cloud storage where they don't have to deal with this complexity. I think that's you know kind of what it is and also why it's so popular. So what sort of use cases do you see with object storage versus something like file or block? Uh, usually it's going to be where we're getting beyond the point uh, that file or block can scale to. So, you know, usually when we're talking about file, we're talking about, you know, perhaps millions up into the low billions of files. Uh, but when we get into objects, we're getting into, you know, many, many billions of files um, or, you know, you know, potentially petabytes or exabytes of storage. So it really is truly, you know, kind of web scale. Um, so think about backup, um, you know, IoT, Anything that needs to address uh, a massive amount of storage starts to make a lot of sense. And in the enterprise, we have more and more applications that are taking advantage. So pretty much uh, all of your backup and archive were kind of the first movers in this space. Uh, performance wasn't really important. Uh, but now we're moving into more you know, native applications that were built, built natively to run in Amazon, um, in the hyperscalers. They natively speak these APIs, and now they expect good performance. Um, and we're starting to see things where like, can you delete a bunch of objects, you know, quickly, these things become important. So we're really seeing a move from, you know, from archive from that cold, dense storage where performance didn't matter to a more performant, more like, you know, primary storage use case with S3. Okay. So, you know, we've covered what S3 and object is. What is storage grid? Like what, where does that fit in? And, and you know, why does NetApp have that type of platform? So again, storage grid is you know our object storage play along with uh, supporting ONTAP and S3. We acquired uh, storage grid from a company called Bycast back in 2010, and I think at the time we probably were thinking you know that it was focused on the medical space. Uh, that's primarily where their business was, and then things just kind of evolved. So I think you know things started really to take off around 2014 and and beyond, uh, just as more and more applications began to natively support it. Uh, so. You know, think about Commvault, Veeam, Rubric, uh, Splunk Smart Store. Um, all of these applications are using object storage for massive scale. Um, and so it's been a good fit for us there. If I could jump in on, on that a little bit, because the, the way that I think about what is storage grid or the way I try to explain it to, to folks uh, is basically, um, you know, Amazon S3, you know, Amazon uh, uh, Web Services, and in particular, the, the S3 uh, object storage uh, interface. Suppose that you really like that way of, of interacting with uh, storage or and or you have applications that, uh, that, that want to interact with storage using that protocol, but you don't want to, um, you, you don't actually want to use 
the cloud you want for cost or efficiency or security reasons or for performance or a variety of other reasons you want to own that storage infrastructure that's that's what what storage grid gives you it gives you the ability to uh, to purchase uh, install and operate your own Amazon s3 within your own data centers uh, on your own hardware um, and uh, uh, Cost-wise, at a certain uh, point of scale, uh, it, it turns out to be much, much cheaper to, to do so than it is to uh, to purchase those services from a cloud vendor. Yeah, I imagine that you know, object storage is kind of also taken off because of the shift in priorities for for web apps and, and you know the the focus on images and videos and I think that those types of file types fit in better with things like object versus something like a database. Yeah, I think you're right about that just in the um, the the mechanism for accessing those resources, you know, the fact that you can access those resources via URL in the same way that you access other application resources makes it a, a natural fit. I also think the again, I'm I mean, URL, Universal Resource uh, Locator, the fact that you can design your app without having to figure out, oh, well, well, the, the, these resources are located in this uh, data center that requires the accessing this file share and, uh, and so on and so forth. The fact that uh, you, you, there's the, the protocol and the, the programming paradigm for object storage naturally scales to uh, globally, you know, uh, uh, is, is I think the, um, what's so appealing about it for, for applications like that. So when, when these applications access these things globally, are they smart enough to know to grab the most local copy of these resources or, or are they just basically pointing to a name and then going wherever they go? Well, it's an excellent question. So, um, of the it is. application <laughs> uh, typically you you wouldn't want to have every application developer uh, uh, solving problems like that, right? And and the so the infrastructure should solve it, and certainly storage grid uh, in conjunction with uh, um, both an internal and external uh, load balancing um, does uh, does provide quite a bit of intelligence uh, towards trying to ensure that uh, you get the, you know, wherever the application is accessing the data that uh, the system responds with, uh, with data that is uh, as local as possible to maximize efficiency. And all of that's done uh, sort of uh, uh, by storage grid behind the scenes uh, for your, your application. It's, it, it's not a lot of extra coding. So, Steve, you know, that touches on the next topic here, the load balancers. So what what sort of things exist today for load balancing a global namespace like a storage grid where it's need to, you know, it needs to find the most local access to an object in that particular namespace? Yeah, so a load balancer is, is a key piece of infrastructure for object storage. So we've got that, that URL that's incredibly simple. Uh, but behind that, all the things that make that storage resilient and available, you know, to your point, really can be global. Like if we look at NetApp IT, the way we implement storage grid, right, we've got data centers on, you know, the, the West and East Coast. And we have another one in Amsterdam. And all of that can be gotten through a single URL. 
But behind that, right, it's still just always servers, right? You've still got a bunch of servers that are the nodes in the system. The load balancers actually take all those resources and put it behind that common URL. Um, so, you know, and today this is still valid. You can use any load balancer with storage grid, right? So you can use an F5 or HA proxy or Citrix NetScaler. Um, they are going to run a health check on all those nodes, make sure that you're always getting a healthy, responsive node, and then serve you that data. And that's what makes this so simple, right? That's when you can write an application just to do, you know, get, put, delete uh, against this one namespace. Um, so load balancers are, are how you make that work. Kind of like, you know, that's how the cloud works, right? We're abstracting all these things behind the scenes. So Sam, yeah, he's pointed out the load balancers that are supported. Do we have anything specifically to storage grid that handles load balancing without the need of an external load balancer? And if so, how does that work? Yeah, so storage grid um, has a concept of a, a, a gateway node, which is the way that um, gateway node provides load balancing functionality uh, that sits in front of each of those individual servers and sort of manages the uh, those sort of health checks and other connectivity systems or connectivity checks that you would have to implement manually in a third-party load balancer system, we can provide a lot more intelligence into the way that that data is laid out and accessed within Storage Grid using um, internally uh, reported metrics. So what sort of internal reported metrics do we use? Like, how does that work? Uh, so the grid maintains uh, internal topology information, which is needed for not only the load balancing functionality, but also the communications that happen between various nodes. Um, we leverage that along with uh, some additional telemetry, which we report uh, between nodes. Yeah, I just want to, uh, to, because to, I don't want to undersell what I think is a, a really um, uh, really interesting and and unique architecture uh, that that Sam's getting at here is that uh, you know many of our our competitors virtually anyone who sells an object store recommends that you use load balancing that's just how it works as Steve said that's that's how the cloud the cloud works but but nobody else has a load balancer a protocol aware load balancer embedded embedded as part of their product it's usually done via partnership uh, arrangements so storage grid made the deliberate decision to include not just the s3 functionality but also a portion of the load balancer stack as 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 kind of a, a full participant a full member of of a, of a deployed grid part of the product rather than uh, 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 interacting with something ex external and because of that architectural choice we have the ability to enhance the uh, load balancing um, in, in a variety of ways that just aren't possible if you're using an external load balancer right because we have access to the uh, the grid internals we uh, when, when when Steve or Sam talks about uh, doing a health check, what that looks like on the ground when you're using a third-party load balancer is basically sending an HTTP options request usually or something along those lines that the load balancer periodically pulls each node with an options request and if it gets a response, well, that's a, that's a good one. Well, that may or may not be true. You know, uh, we have the ability to consider you know, in in routing the the traffic whether the nodes involved, for example, have unusually high CPU loads. Um, 
the, the, we potentially have the ability to know whether the nodes involved actually have copies of the data that's being requested stored locally or whether they're going to have to forward the request to additional nodes. Um, and because this is a layer seven or protocol aware load balancer, uh, at the load balancer, let me step back and explain a little bit about what that means. Um, you know, you can load balance at multiple points in the OSI stack. Um, that's where those layer numbers come from. You can, and and it is not an. It's fairly common to load balance at layer two or, or layer three or layer four, sort of at the the TCP um, uh, layer. And you can do that quite efficiently, but. But um, assuming that you're, you're handling encrypted traffic, which is uh, hopefully typically the case, uh, putting yourself at layer four means that you have no ability to know anything about that traffic. Um, you, you, you are essentially proxying uh, SSL. Um, whereas a layer seven load balancer like storage grid uh, offers is actually terminating the encrypted connections and re-originating. And that means that it has access to the protocol traffic and can use that to do some very interesting things, which I think we'll, we'll be getting into here. Um, and to make it concrete, you know, I, as the load balancer in a storage grid deployment, um, can tell what bucket this request is directed at, the name of the object, uh, all of that kind of thing. And I can use that information uh, in, in conjunction with what the grid uh, knows about that bucket on object uh, to, to make an optimal load balancing decision. That's That's really unique. Yeah, I guess it's basically, you know, a difference of distributing based on IP address, which can change and can be in different places and you don't realize it versus distributing based on actual knowledge of what's going on in that ground. So um, you mentioned the storage grid load balancer. Is that something that can do global load balancing or is it only a local load balancer? So the, yeah, that's a very good, uh, a very good, another good question, Justin. I totally, you, did, you guys didn't tell me to ask that beforehand. Either, <laughs> so this is, uh, yeah, the, we're we're not looking to uh, to replace for uh, a multinational corporation's global load balancing infrastructure, uh, where the storage grid load balancer, uh, which is our SG one thousand or our new SG one hundred appliance or the software only uh, deployments. Uh, where that fits into the network is kind of at the local load balancing level. So you would uh, you'd have a storage grid embedded load balancer probably at each of your DCs or your storage grid sites um, that would handle balancing traffic uh, uh, amongst the nodes at that site. It's possible to, uh, to extend that across potentially um, to data centers and sort of, well, you're, you're an ONTAP guy, Justin. So like in a Metroplex type uh, uh, or Metro, Metroplex, a Metro, Metroplex. Metro cluster. I like that name better. 
Metro, yeah, Metroflex. Yeah. yeah, so I giant fighting robot as opposed to uh, a, a style of uh, high-speed uh, metropolitan interconnect for block storage redundancy. I, I prefer it to, but I meant to say metro cluster. Uh, so in like a metro, in an ONTAP metro cluster config, for example, where you've got uh, guaranteed high bandwidth, low latency links between two data centers, you might extend uh, a single or a pair of storage grid load balancers uh, to to balance load across multiple sites but it fundamentally is is meant to uh, to handle I guess what I would call the uh, the last mile of load balancing um, so you would have your uh, your global load balancer infrastructure uh, which we do not provide would uh, would be responsible for getting the traffic to the uh, local site and then the the SG uh, 100 or 1000 uh, takes it from there Okay. So you mentioned the SG100 and that's that's a new platform for this release. So Sam, can you tell us a little bit about that platform? Uh yeah, so the SG100 is a cost reduced version of the SG1000. Um for from external view, it looks pretty much identical uh to the SG1000 except for different network cards on the back. Um so rather than supporting uh four ports at 100 gig, like the SG-1000 does, the SG-100 is running four ports at 10 slash 25. Um, and along with the reduction in network bandwidth, there's also a reduction in uh, CPU and RAM inside the box. So what sort of use cases are you seeing for these smaller boxes versus the 1000? Is, is it strictly a, a cost play or is it like for, you know, small businesses and that sort of thing? Uh, so cost is definitely a big one, especially for things like a small fabric pools deployment. Um, rather than needing to be able to manage hundreds of gigabits of traffic uh, for a small fabric pool deployment, that's way overkill and way more than you need to be spending for a very small deployment. Um, yeah, I would. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there, Sam. I just, I, I totally agree with you, and and I think that you could even describe that as maybe the sweet spot for for SG100, as uh, as you know, we in Storage Grid have been seeing a huge demand for uh, for for fabric pools, the ONTAP uh, fabric pool feature that allows you to. Uh, are you familiar with this, Justin? Have you heard of the fabric pool? I, um, I've, it's, it's, you know, kind of like tickling a, a brain cell in there somewhere. <laughs> so are your listeners familiar with, uh, in general, familiar with that? Uh, that uh, you know what? I, I, let's assume they're not. So let's go ahead and okay. just talk about what fabric pool might be. Yeah, fair enough. So, so uh, if you have an all-flash uh, ONTAP system, an AFF, um, uh, actually nine point eight, you don't even need that anymore. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, so, really, any ONTAP system as of as of nine point eight, I guess the original use case and the one I'm still stuck on is, like, I want, I, I want to spend a lot of money uh, to have uh, to have really high performance flash storage, but I know that. Uh, 80% of the data that people write to it um, is is not, you know, maybe it'll be maybe it'll be hot for a few days. Um, they might need access to it for a few months, but it's it's 
it's not accessed enough to justify the 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 investment in in SSDs that would require to keep it all on flash. But I want to have my cake and eat it too. Uh, so I'd really like it to be intelligently tiered out to uh, cheaper storage um, and pulled back uh, on an as needed basis. Um, and, and basically that's what Fabric Pools is for, for ONTAP, is it, it gives the ONTAP system uh, the intelligence to um, to uh, kind of offload the, the fast expensive storage uh, uh, onto uh, less expensive, you know, cheap and deep storage is, is I guess, the industry term. Um, and it supports uh, S3 interfaces. Um, uh, and we have found that, uh, that well, Storage Grid, uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but Storage Grid turns out to be the runaway first uh, first choice for uh, NetApp Fabric Pools customers uh, for that S3 uh, interface. Yeah, one of the reasons is, you know, the in the egress and ingest for that particular platform is you know it doesn't cost you anything like you know, if you go to the cloud you're dealing with costs for egress from there um another reason is you know it's you know the official supported <laughs> netapp thing right so some, a lot of people like to keep their netapp buckets or baskets all together so that, that that's another big part of it now with the sg100 you know, mentioned some limitations with CPU and network and RAM. Are there limitations in, in number of nodes you can have in that grid? So I'll, I'll take this. We're making some some kind of general rule of thumb, uh, you know, estimates of how many storage nodes you can put behind this. And we're starting with saying right around eight. Um, and that's, you know, I think a place to start. But again, it's going to depend a lot on your workload. But yeah, for rule of thumb, we're saying if, if you're looking at eight nodes and smaller, go with an SG100. If you're looking above that, that's probably where you want to look at the SG1000. I think you know one of the thing to kind of you know kind of a big picture here is that we see object storage becoming so popular that more small and mid-sized customers are running it, and so that's why we started with the SG1000. Was you know we're kind of targeting those bigger you know hundreds of you know petabyte workloads. And now that we're coming smaller, right, we're seeing more opportunities for small and, and mid-size uh, customers. The other big point here is that, you know, if you were a really big customer, like, you know, NetApp, we already had F5. We already had, you know, a really, you know, a really smart guy that knew how to configure that for us. As we reach out to more and smaller customers, they, they didn't have a reason to own a load balancer. And for them to take on this entirely new animal and, and think about things like SSL certificates, it was really tough. And so this load balancer just makes that all really easy. And now the SG100 kind of comes and hits that sweet spot price-wise. Um, there's one other thing I'd call out about the SG1, you know, SG1000, SG100 is it allows us to have an entirely appliance-based grid. Um, you know, a few versions of software back, we offered our, our storage nodes as the appliance. And, you know, literally you just kind of cable them, rack and stack them, and, and you're off to the races. But then for the administrative nodes and the load balancer nodes, you had to go create a VM or create a bare metal, you know, build your own server. And now the SG100 and SG1000 do that for us. So even for a customer that maybe already has an F5 or a Citrix Netscaler and is happy with it, they may want to run the SG100 just as a dedicated storage grid admin node. So with the SG100 and really just with storage grid in general, I know that we have a software-defined version of that. Is is it possible to mix hardware and software-defined versions together in the same grid so that you don't have to deploy an appliance at remote sites that might not have the rack space for that? 
Yeah, it is possible. I mean, especially with the load balancer, um, I'll, I'll make some some kind of caveats, right? It, with a big grid that's growing over time, uh, we see customers who have like, you know, for instance, NetApp IT, I think we have 40 something nodes and we have like practically one of every generation of our appliance in that, in that grid. Um, so when you're starting off, you want to have like, you know, a, a minimum size grid is three nodes. You want those all to be the same model, but you could do, you know, either an SG100 or a VM. I guess the only kind of, uh, you know, caution I would do is if your if your VM and your SG100 are, are very different from each other, that you'd have unpredictable um, behavior on on failover. So I think our official line is that we don't want you to mix and match. So Morgan and Sam, do we want to have kind of a, you know, is it just better to say, you know, when we're creating an HA group, when we're we're you know putting these together into a highly available group, we want them to be the same, correct? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the 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 recommendation is certainly uh, for if you're grouping load balancer, uh, uh, if you're grouping load balancer nodes together into what storage grid calls an HA or high availability group, uh, which basically means that uh, each node can fail over for uh, for other nodes in that group. Obviously, in, in that scenario, it makes sense uh, to try and keep all of the nodes uh, to be relatively equivalent from uh, a per- performance perspective, because otherwise you could end up failing over from a a pretty hot, high-performance uh, uh, hardware-based node onto a, a pokey VM and and have problems as a result. So and I think this is just common sense, but that that's the rule of thumb. But as to your question, Justin, for for the the case where the grid spans multiple sites and some of them are smaller sort of branch office types sites where you you can't justify a large hardware investment but you still want to uh, have the functionality absolutely uh, you can deploy software only if you've got existing VMware infrastructure you can deploy uh, either our 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 VM versions or our, uh, our container-only versions uh, uh, in, in those environments. If you've got existing uh, bare metal and prefer to go that way, don't want to pay the VMware licensing, uh, the, the, you can deploy um, uh, our container-only version of uh, either the load balancing nodes or the storage nodes uh, or the admin nodes um, on uh, in a, a bring your own hardware uh, type type scenario, and it definitely uh, uh, definitely makes sense for for some use cases. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, and I think everyone understands this, software only isn't you know isn't necessarily uh, doesn't at the end of the day may not offer a much better total cost of ownership than um, than than a hardware than a, a full stack solution and the reason the reason is is that you you end up then having to do that work that's been done for you when you purchase the the appliances right well we have uh, you know the 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 engineered appliance solutions uh, give you one uh, one one phone number to call if something is wrong uh, anywhere within that system um, uh, they they match the storage and compute and network um, uh, in ways that have been fully tested with storage grid. Uh, so, so 
So it, it, it may often make sense to spend a little bit more upfront uh, for those, uh, those hardware plant solutions because you're going to end up spending more over time um, with software only. But uh, yeah, we, we definitely have the flexibility to meet uh, uh, virtually any deployment requirement. Yeah, and I would imagine that, you know, dealing with the failover differences or, you know, the unpredictability of performance when you hit a software versus a hardware site, that that doesn't matter as much when you're dealing with capacity-based workloads. But when, it, when you are dealing with, like, application access or the need for low latency or high throughput, that can kind of factor into these particular workloads. Yeah, yeah, that that's certainly a a, a good point. And uh, as as usual, there isn't really any um, there, there isn't any right answer. You really have to think about the uh, the specific uh, use case and workloads uh, uh, to to figure out what makes sense. So, what about other S three providers? Is are they possible to add to the grid, or is it strictly a storage grid only grid? So the SG-1000 can't be used uh, with any other object store, but we have a feature within Storage Grid called Cloud Storage Pools, which, is allow, which allows us to actually use capacity in, in Amazon and Azure. So you actually can do a tier out or make an additional copy for resiliency. Um, so okay. Yeah, you, yeah. So basically just leveraging whatever S3 protocol to do a copy from there. Exactly. I see. All right. So... Um, now I know that the SG100 isn't all that's new with Storage Grid. So what, what what's the new release of Storage Grid? Is that what's the latest release? Eleven point four is the latest release. Okay, so that that was out in I guess the fall. Correct. Okay, so in that release, did we introduce anything new, or you know, what sort of feature sets do we have available to us? So this is also you know kind of related to the load balancer. It is a feature um, that is available both on the hardware version and software version. It's called traffic classifications. And it allows us to do, you know, kind of at the top level QoS. So I think that's how most people are going to think about it. I can, you know, rate limit or, or limit the amount of bandwidth for a workload based on the IP or bucket or, or the tenant. Um, but it also has some really interesting ways of letting us get, see what's inside that workload. Um, and that's one of the things I think our customers ask us a lot, right? They get these unknown workloads. And, you know, we always ask these questions. How big is the object? What's your, you know, read, write, delete pattern? This actually lets you run a workload against Storage Grid and then use our metric system um, all through some very nice Grafana charts to see exactly what's inside that workload. There's also a, f- a functionality called alerting. Is that something that came in 11.4 or has that kind of always been there? So I think it was actually in our 11.3 release that we um, switched over to um, the Prometheus API for our metrics and alerting. And then with the 11.4 release, we, we did some, you know, kind of modernization of our monitoring and alerting um, infrastructure. And this is a little confusing, right? Because we went from the term where we called it um, alarms and now we're calling it alerts, which, you know, doesn't make a lot of sense when I say it out loud like that. But one of the issues that customers have historically reported with, with Storage Grid is that the grid uh, was too ready to tell you that it thought might, something might be wrong. Um, you know, we had a we had uh, the our legacy system for for notifying uh, 
users of, of problems, the alarm system uh, was quite chatty. Uh, so if you had, a, had an actual issue, you might get notified of eight different things that the system thought that it might be. And you would occasionally get notified of things that when you called support, they would tell you, oh yeah, well, under these circumstances, that's actually expected. You don't need to do anything about it. And the natural question was, well, why did you tell me about it? Why did you, and, and you know, we, we, we sympathized with that and embarked on uh, what turned out to be a multi-release journey to, uh, to, to entirely overhaul that system to make it uh, not to hide real problems. You don't want to hide problems. That's the, the, the knife edge that you're walking here is that you've got to tell them when something's wrong and uh, ideally only tell them when something's wrong and when you when something is wrong, identify that specific thing and tell them what to do about it. So the the, the reason why there's ten, it is confusing, but the old system was alarms, the new system is alerts. There needed to be two different names because they coexisted in the system um, for uh, for multiple releases. Uh, alerts is 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 the, is the great new thing, and and I think it was the 11.4 release that actually switched from alarms to alerts as the default. Uh, mechanism um, used in storage grid for for notifying users of, of problems um, and uh, I mean this is something that uh, is an incredible amount of of functionality that's that's been added to allow those system administrators who are who are deeply interested in um, in in monitoring there's a place for them there's a way to define custom alerts based on virtually anything you can think of you know hundreds of different metrics tracked on a per node basis that can be combined together using Prometheus's uh, uh, query language to uh, to to create custom alerts for for literally any situation that that a that a administrator might administrator might be interested in. But on the other side of, of things, you know, what's built in, what's baked into the product, what it comes defined with should be enough that if you don't care about that, you just want it to tell you if something's wrong and what to do about it, then uh, that's how it functions uh, out of the box. Um, so that was, uh, I mean, I think that was a, that was an exciting transition in the 11.4 release was to finally um, commit to that that new architecture, which has been been a long time uh, coming. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we got into this topic because um, the all new features, including the traffic classifier engine that uh, that Sam built, um, sort of tied in tightly with uh, with this alerting um, uh, infrastructure, um, and and they can be used together uh, 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 in in some very interesting ways. And so, sort of make that a little bit more concrete. And sort of an example of something that you could do with the combination of these features is say you've got um, amongst all of your traffic, you've got uh, some fabric pool workloads along with, say, some other backup and archive workloads. And you want to be able to see more clearly what's going on between those various workloads and to be able to monitor to see if anything is going wrong with them. Um, so you could set up a traffic classifier for your backup workload and another traffic classifier for your fabric pool workload. And for each of these, we generate and report uh, an extensive number of metrics. Uh, so you can leverage that new alerting framework to be able to create a custom alert 
to send you an email or, or give you a notification when, say, the average error rate on your backup workload is above a tenth of a percent or something like that. Or if your fabric pool average read latency is above 250 milliseconds. Uh, it's a very flexible uh, system that lets you get very deep insights into what your workload is. Yeah, the the traffic classifier nomenclature is. Uh, uh, let me just spend a minute on it because I, I think it's it's interesting to understand the perspective that we came at this from. Because um, most people think of QoS uh, in in terms of traffic throttling, basically. Um, I want to be able to uh, to limit and and ultimately for 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 the so-called noisy neighbor that that may be what you want to do, but most. Uh, storage administrators, um, you know, if their if their system is is appropriately provisioned, then most of the time they really shouldn't ideally have to slow anyone down. Certainly, they don't want to. Uh, generally, don't want to slow down their customers for no reason. Um, so the the real question, or one of the main questions that we kept bumping into as we were thinking about QoS, is like, how do they figure out what limits to set? We can easily uh, we can easily apply, you know, we can execute on on limits in terms of requests per second or total bandwidth or what have you. Um, the the executive uh, element there is uh, is just typing, right? But how do they figure out what numbers to put in there? Um, shouldn't we actually give them that ability uh, as, as part of uh, any kind of reasonable QoS solution? So we sort of pivoted from, from just a throttling-based QoS to this concept of traffic classification, which may or may not have a throttling or, or QoS uh, element. So one workflow would be, you know, I set up uh, traffic classifiers that match the buckets uh, that are in use by my various tenants or the tenants themselves, depending on how I've organized things. And uh, I'm not limiting anything. I'm just doing basically a study of, of, uh, of how they're using the system, what the, and, and that's where the metric, uh, the metrics that Sam was mentioning, really come in handy. You know, I can let I can let it run like this for a week. I can um, collect. I can see what times of day. I expect what kind of load. Um, you know, that kind of thing. And that information arms me with the ability to set up uh, potential, uh, you know, throttling based on. Um, Based on uh, any uh, of four, four or five different uh, uh, types of throttling, based on the load that I've observed, hopefully in such a way that I don't impact anyone. Right, that's the goal: is that I know how you're using the system today. I've seen, you know, the variations in in your workload. I know what my capacity is, I want to set my limits so that uh, if you keep behaving uh, uh, properly like you did during these last uh, two weeks, you're not even going to see anything. It's not going to affect you at all. But if you step 
well out of bounds, um, then it's going to keep you from impact, you know, keep one one tenant or customer from Im impacting others. And and this, uh, the way that we that Sam implemented uh, traffic classification in in uh, in Storage Grid uh, was was designed to 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 enable that workflow, um, which I think is uh, really interesting. All right. Well, we learned a lot about object storage as well as the new storage grid SG100 platform. Uh, Steve, uh, if we wanted to find more information about storage grid in general or the SG100, where could we find that? Uh, go to netapp.com. Um, and we've got all sorts of great uh, articles and resources. Also, netapp.io. Uh, we've written some white papers and tech reports. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, and, you know, we'll add those to the show notes or the blog that we post with this. You know, we'll give you a few links to look at. Um, so, again, Steve, if we wanted to reach you, how do we do that? Uh, you can give me an email at sprch at netapp.com. And Sam? Uh, Sam.fink at netapp.com. And Morgan? Uh, M-M-M-M-E-A-R-S at netapp.com. All right. Is it M-M-M-M-E-R-S? Is that the whole? Uh, yeah, it's four M's. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Well, it seems like too many M's. Do we actually no, spell out the double M? Uh, M-M-E-A-R-S at netapp.com. Sorry, I'm pedantic. All right. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone. All right. That music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or via TechOnTapPodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Sam Fink, Morgan Mears, and Steve Prichnewski for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.